And here we go again. August the 16th, 2015, lecture discussion number 208 on the Book of Romans. As is always the case here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is neither beautiful nor downtown or on a cliff, we have a pile of stuff on the table to sift through. It's a constant gleaning process. It's never-ending gleaning process if we are doing it right, and I think we are, and so that's what we're continuing to do. And we've solved so much. If you look at our list, uh, I have solved how many of these? My goodness, the last two weeks. I would say, that's kind of half a joke, I will say that Caesar's coin is pretty well determined by now. If you ever had any questions about what was the trap at Caesar's coin, or what did he mean by render to Caesar, render to God, you should now have that firmly established. Um, if you haven't, uh, the tape is for sale. A uh, couple thousand, never mind, it's free. I'd recommend if you're curious about that. But it fits into these eight items inside of Mark 11 and Mark 12 that are all connected, so it's valuable to know. But uh, most of them have been at least gone through enough that everyone should have a fairly good working knowledge of it by now. If you don't, it's okay. I'll, I'll keep repeating it. Uh, little by little, but not as definitively as I did in the past. As we now, as of now, the priorities are in no particular order uh, with respect to Mark 11 and Mark 12. Again, primarily uh, I'm focusing on this parable of the vineyard. That's the center of it in the way I approach it. But we have to deal with the mystery of the taking of the donkey. This is a, a great mystery in my view. I'm going to try to solve that tonight uh, for you. This is Genesis 49:10 through 11, as you know. The meaning of the burial or the no burial, the fact that in the parable of the vineyard, the son, God the son, the owner's son, is, is thrown over the wall and not buried in the city or in the hedge of the vineyard. The logic of the tenant farmers, what their logic is, they believe they can get possession of the vineyard if they kill everybody. What are they doing? What does the vineyard mean? It's the inheritance, of course. We covered that a few weeks ago. It has a salvation context. They seem to think that salvation is available to them if everyone dies. That is the ultimate motive of the tenant farmer, right? I covered that a few weeks ago. We'll finish up with that somewhat. I did that in the post game. I'm letting the, uh, the Internet folks now see where I'm headed with that. Uh, during the actual presentation here that goes online. The symbolism of the money changers is another aspect of it. He overturns, he looks at the money changers, as you know, the money, when he cleanses the temple, the money changers are selling salvation. Yeah, God will not allow salvation to be sold, it must be free, because if you have sold salvation or earned salvation, then you do not have Christ as God. And that, of course, can't work because without Christ being God, there is no salvation. So we have a definition of money changing, what money changing means. And as you know, if you were here, I have money changing at Caesar's coin and I have money changing in the cleansing of the temple. And that joins those two uh, entities together. And then uh, that's why that comes next, the totality of Caesar's image as it is contrasted with God's image. And that takes us back to Genesis 1.26, as you all know, right? Finally, item number F, if you're keeping track. I went A, B, C, D, E, and F. Item number F is Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is prominent in Mark 11 and 12. Psalm 118 comes with the entry into Jerusalem after the taking of the donkey, and Psalm 118 is at the statement of the cornerstone just prior to Caesar's coin after the parable of the vineyard. We'll get to that here in a minute. 
So we'll have to solve Psalm 118. And then last week I introduced Romans 11, 25 through 32, something we'll read again. The provoking of Israel to jealousy. This has this over umbrella, if you will, of provoking Israel to jealousy. The hardening in part of Israel or the blindness in part that is in Israel now. The fullness of the Gentiles, what that means, I discussed that last week. That's the number of Gentiles that are going to be in the rapture, if you will, in the taking of the bride. Uh, On top of that, I also have remember Lot's wife. So the question becomes, how does the hardening in part of Israel or the blindness in part, the fullness of the Gentiles with respect to the taking of the bride, and remember Lot's wife, how do those three fit together in the mystery of Israel, mystery number seven, Romans 11, 25 through 32. So, there's your recap. None of that made sense. You're just like the rest of it, so it's okay. Lots of people pretend that they're, that they got it all. And no one ever gets it all. Remember that. And I'm gonna, I probably ought to, and I will, read the mystery of Israel's blindness in part again in the fullness of the Gentiles. I want you to notice that, that Israel's blindness in part is juxtapositioned, it's juxtaposed, it's adjacent to the fullness of the Gentiles. He puts those together. So something about Israel being partially blind or partially hardened, and the number of people that are going to be raptured with the church, those are side by side. So once more, you see the wife, Israel, contiguous with the bride, the church. Again, side by side. You never find the wife, Israel, the sign of the wife, uh, alone. You always find the sign of the wife and the sign of the bride somewhere together. Now, it's important to know the distinction. Some verses apply to the sign of Israel. Some people, uh, some verses apply to the sign of the taking of the bride. Some verses apply to both. So let's go ahead and reread Romans now, 11, 25 through 32. And see if, oops. One of my markers fell out. Some people have really fancy bookmarks I use. It fell out again. What's that sound? I use Sharpie uh, highlighter pens for my markers, if you wonder why I keep bending over to pull it out. Okay, keep it in there this time. It's Romans 11.25. Let's read this all the way down to verse 32. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So what does he say? What is God through Paul saying? The Holy Spirit through Paul. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Insert your name in, brethren. I should not be, I do not desire, Steve, that you're an idiot. You don't know what this mystery is about. He doesn't want me to not know this mystery. So he doesn't want us to not know this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Because if you don't understand the mystery of the hardness in part of Israel, you will think yourself smart and you will not be. That's what he's saying to us. 
that blindness in part, hardness in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. Again, that's a numerical reference to the number of the Gentiles has come in. That is, a, in my view, that is the number of people who will be in the church when it is rapture. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, that does not mean that all of Israel that has ever been will be saved. It means that those who survived the tribulation, will every one of them will be saved. So all of Israel that goes into the 75-day interval will be saved. Then he reads what? Or doesn't read it, he wrote it. Then he quotes what he wrote. God does. What's he quote? Psalm 118. So here's Psalm 118 again. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not. That's not Psalm 118. My mistake. I need soda. Isaiah 59. The deliverer was Psalm 14. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedience, disobedient that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Okay, I read that badly uh, because I'm struggling to see again today. But let me point out to you the, the irro- irrevocability or the irrevocable. There we got it finally out. Not revocable element here. Also, this disobedience to God, mercy, disobedience, mercy, disobedience, mercy, mercy, disobedience, disobedience, mercy. I have four mercies and four disobedience. And Paul is saying to them, listen, Israel was given mercy and you were disobedient, Gentiles. What do I have here? I have the sign of the wife and the sign of the bride again. Israel is given mercy, and you, Gentiles, were disobedient. Now you have mercy, and they have disobedience. And through your disobedience, you got mercy. Through their disobedience and your mercy, they'll get mercy. Does that make sense? That's what he said. I want to emphasize that the mercy cannot be revoked. And that the mercy is tied directly to disobedience. We will and, and we have to. We must refer, return to Romans 11. However, today, I just want you to notice again, this mercy-disobedience side by side and the fact that it cannot be revoked. Understanding that mercy cannot be revoked, it has a non-revocable cause to it, is very important doctrinally. If you do not understand this mystery, mystery, you will think yourself wise, and you will not be. Understand that mercy is not something that can be taken. The clause is permanent. Disobedience accompanied by mercy all under the canopy, canopy of irrevocable. And obviously, I have considered Romans 11:25 through 32. 
Maybe it's not so obvious, but I will assume that you think it's obvious. I've considered what, what we just read with regard to Romans 11:25 through 32, the mystery of the blindness of Israel. I've considered it alongside of Luke 17:32, which is the admonition from Christ to remember Lot's wife, or what I call the sign of Lot's wife. So I am putting the mystery of the blindness of Israel, the mystery number seven, and Luke 17:32, the sign of Lot's wife, side by side. Christ says to Israel, remember the irrevocable mercy given to Lot's wife. Remember that Lot's wife is a pillar of salt. Now, I know that's a controversial position that I have, but let's go see how I did. Once again, let me ask you this. She could have been turned in... No, she wasn't turned into it. She was buried in salt. But if you see the, the, if you see the, the dynamics of that situation, of what that land looked like after God bombed it, salt came up in columns. There was a, there was a bunch of salt literally thrown into the air and it came down. It also came up in columns. So what is, again, this meaning of the pillar of salt? Why is Lot's wife described as a pillar of salt? How does this symbol, the pillar of salt, relate to the sign that his Lot's wife? He's telling the city of the nation of Israel just prior to the tribulation, remember Lot's wife. How does the pillar of salt cause Israel to be provoked to jealousy? Because Israel is provoked to jealousy. And, and soon we're going to have to be about that task, accumulating all of what in the Bible in order to solve it. I'm asking you again, what does the pillar of salt mean? How am I going to solve the pillar of salt? i got to know the meaning of it. Is it a tombstone? Is that what you think it is? It can't be that. I'll explain in a minute that it can't be some sign of where she's buried in salt. So how do I approach this pillar of salt? I know it's a big pile. What do I got to do? If I asked you, tell me the meaning of the pillar of salt, what would you do? Your first step. Well, what you ought to do is go around and accumulate all of the other places in the Bible where, the, where a pillar is mentioned. Go get all the pillars, placing them alongside each other. Again, a great big pile. I know that. Clearly, the pillar of salt, what's the next pillar that you can think of that is as prominent as the pillar of salt? If I say the pillar of salt is the most prominent pillar in the Bible, what would be the second most prominent? Yeah, I have the pillar of cloud for sure. Which one came first? Pillar of salt came first. It is the first mention of pillar in the Bible, Genesis 19.26. So if I'm going to figure out what pillar means there with respect to Lot's wife, I've got to go find all the other pillars. The next one that I would find, of course, would be the pillar of cloud, right? Exodus 33.9. I've got to put those two together immediately. Now, most people would say to you the pillar of salt is an example of condemnation, wouldn't they? We've covered this before. Pillar of salt is bad. And, of course, being obstinate and unwilling to follow the conventional wisdom. 
because the conventional wisdom never is interested in my perspective, and, and I'm such a sensitive person. But, um, anyway, uh, I found the conventional wisdom to be lazy. So I don't necessarily agree with them by instinct that pillars are bad. Is the pillar of cloud bad? No. Not to Israel. Remember Lot's wife, she's a pillar of salt. Pillar of cloud is clearly protection based. Leading Israel, protecting Israel, guiding Israel. It is powerful. It has great strength. You're going to find that pillars are protection. Again, this non-revocable element is in pillars. Unshakable. Strong. See Revelation 3.12. See Revelation 10.1. I submit that the sign of Lot's wife is far more complex than universally or generally portrayed, the conventional wisdom. Lot's wife is a pillar of salt and, and is to be remembered by Israel. And, and again, for today, I just want you to note this mercy, 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 mercy that is all over this mystery of Israel's blindness. Now, for the Internet audience and for those of you who are pestering me to accelerate this process, with this rush, you want me to rush to the end of the sign of Lot's wife, and I understand that, and I'm, I'm sensitive to it. I reinserted Lot's wife today, and I did it because I did want to quell the clamor to skip ahead. There are those who are accusing me of forgetting to remember Lot's wife. I brought her up months ago or so, and you think I forgot. I am a true professional trying to illustrate that. I do forget to remember things all the time, however. Condition of my advancing age. But if you start to investigate the meaning of pillars, knowing that Lot's wife is a pillar, you will begin to unravel Luke 17.32. So we'll get to that in the weeks to come. And hopefully those of you who are, uh, like I said, uh, anxious, that will give you some places to leap forward with. Consider it a preview of coming issues to resolve. I know, I know it's uncharacteristic of me to relent to outside pressures and to deviate from my highly structured, meticulously planned lesson format. I know that. Okay, that's not true. None of that sentence. I did relent this time only, um, well, you can only reach one conclusion. People ask me all the time, why do you every now and then go ahead and answer things to people when it's against your predisposition to do so? And the most obvious of the obvious conclusions is what? That why do I do it when I don't want to? Like I just did. That's right. Somebody paid me off. As you well know, I can, I can be bought here. Uh, bribery is effective. Yes, sir. There's lots of pillars. And you've got to go get every single one. But at least start with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of, the pillar of salt is the first mention of pillar in the Bible. My goodness. Yes, I have pillars in Proverbs. I have pillars in Revelation. I have pillars everywhere. 
I have to get them all. But really, all you actually need to do is look at the pillar of cloud and you will figure out. Because it comes second. And it must be side by side with the pillar of salt. Do not assume the pillar of salt is a bad thing. Remember Lot's wife. She's a pillar of salt. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Irrevocable. Okay. Did I mention that I could be bought? Need to mention that again. Somebody, Dave, was supper. Dave was telling me somebody made a comment to him, and he said, "If you'd like Pastor to respond to this particular aspect or question that you're proposing to him, please stuff envelopes full of money. That'll work. That's very funny." Uh, well, some of you become suspicious of Ken and Cindy. You, you know, you, you notice that they're regularly bringing me Cheez-Its. Have you noticed that? Now you know why. You should be suspicious of them. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> Somebody's going to take me seriously about the stuffing money in envelopes, and, and go ahead and take me seriously. That'll be fun. <laughs> hey, the other churches do it. Why can't I? It's working for Benny Hinn, isn't it? I was talking to somebody last week about big buckets of cash. The Benny Hinn thing. You don't want to get me started with that, do you? I'll start ranting. Okay. Let's take another run at this abduction, the taking of the donkey. Let me reread Mark on the taking of the donkey. I think uh, this is uh, amazing. All of Scripture is amazing, clearly. But I think uh, once you begin to see what's going on in Mark 11, it'll become one of your favorite passages, I hope. Certainly is that for me, which is why I like to do it as often as I can. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem, here we are, Mark uh, 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he said, now that's not arbitrary, that is not just superfluous information. He's giving you a specific location. God loves his locations. He sent two. That, again, is not arbitrary. Two is very important here. He sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Boy, ten questions right there. I hope you started asking them. Loose it, untie it, in other words, steal it. Abduct, no, not steal it. Take it. Take it and bring. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their clothes on it, and he sat on the colt. He sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. This is Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us now. And Jesus went into the temple and looked into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, he looked at everything in the temple. He doesn't need to do that. He's omniscient God, but he does it anyway so people can see him do it. It's a dramatic theodicy, as you know. As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
Okay, remember all of that? Now, following the taking of the donkey comes Psalm 118, written by Moses. Moses is referencing Numbers 20. When he's writing Psalm 118, Numbers 20 is where he strikes the rock twice, where the nation of Israel has surrounded him and they intend to kill him and Aaron. He's writing Psalm 118 about that event in Numbers 20, in my view. God quotes it here as he's entering Jerusalem on a donkey that he had abducted or taken. And then he follows that entry into Jerusalem on the donkey with a temple inspection and the fig tree inspection. So I have the taking of the donkey, Psalm 118, I'm inserting that now. So now I've got to go back and look at Numbers 20, right? And then I have the inspection of the temple and the inspection of the fig tree. The temple is found to have no salvation in it at all. In fact, it has the opposite of salvation. And the fig tree is found to have no fruit. So both of those are referencing the nation of Israel at the time. And now, again, go in order to the rest of those eight. Now, to remind everyone, Psalm 118 is in two places within the Mark 11, Mark 12 narrative. It's right here. Psalm 118, and it's right here, Psalm 118, at the cornerstone. Twice it's in there, not insignificant. After the cult, before the inspections, and after the vineyard parable, and before Caesar's image. Keep that at the forefront of your thinking as long as you can. It'll keep coming up. Also, this event, this entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, that's mentioned in all four Gospels. Whenever you find something that is in all four Gospels, you've got a big piece of bone to chew on. Christ's entry in Jerusalem is of great importance scripturally. It's in all four Gospels. And there are details in each one of them that are different. So you have to go get them all, figure out what's the same, figure out what's different, add it all together, and get the totality, the entirety of the entry into Jerusalem. As you know, I pay particular attention to anything that the Apostle John selects and puts in his gospel. When John selects it, it has a singular purpose. What is the singular purpose of the Apostle John He tells you what his purpose is when he writes his gospel. He has one thing he wants you to know. If you read John, you get one thing. What is it that he wants? He wants you to know that Christ is God. His his intention is completely focused on proving the Godhood of Jesus Christ. So therefore, Jesus' entry because it's in the gospel of John is absolute proof that he is God. He's riding a donkey into Jerusalem while they're screaming out Psalm 118 that, and throwing down clothes and laying down branches. That's absolute proof that Jesus is God. We're done, right? Christ is making a declaration in Mark 11, 1 through 11, that he is the creator God, the Lord God Almighty, the I Am, the Ancient of Days. And he declares it because he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey foal. 
People say all the time, Christ never said he was God. I say, well, yeah, he did. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey foal. What more do you want? Absolute proof he's God. And they look at me, kind of like the way you're looking at me as well. But it is. Let me repeat it or rephrase it a little bit. God chooses to make it obvious. Jesus Christ chooses to make it obvious. Jesus God makes it obvious that he's God by riding a donkey foal through a crowd of people into Jerusalem while the people lay down clothes and palm branches. He's God. Absolute proof. And somehow, this is conclusive, categorical proof that God himself has come to Jerusalem. We should know why that is so. It is, by the way, one of the great proofs in the Bible. Hardly anyone knows it. If I asked you to raise your hands and said, how many of you know the definitive proof that is riding the donkey into Jerusalem that's in all four Gospels, is in, in the Gospel of John, how many of you can explain the definitive proof that that is God himself, that is Christ as God? Submit your papers by the end of the lecture. How many of you could write anything? And don't answer that. I know. I've done it enough to know. Very few people in the church today have any idea. That's why the church is in such turmoil. That's why we fall for monism and think uh, things that are silly. Remember, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery of fineness of Israel. He doesn't want you to be stupid. But we choose to be stupid anyway. Okay, let's go to John 12. As a professional, I happen to have a dry erase sharpie to mark my place. Let's read John 12, 12 through 19, because this is the place that John chooses to put it. He puts it, he's very, very detailed, John is. He's on a Passover pattern in the book of John. If you understand the Passover festival, the Passover feast day, John has written his gospel on that pattern. Also, the book of Revelation is written on that pattern. John loves the Passover pattern. He integrates it into what he writes. He does it here. So pay attention to where he put the entry into Jerusalem on the donkey. He puts it after Mary anointing Christ and after the resurrection of Lazarus, right? So here we are, verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now you got a piece of information. You know, it's not just leaves, it's a palm tree leaf, right? And cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. Oh, now we know something else. Fear not, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. We'll get to that in a minute. You have to read that. His disciples did not understand these things at first, so you're in good company. Don't feel bad. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that, that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were... With him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him. I have a bunch of people in this, in this paragraph. You have to figure out what people is that people. To understand who the people are every time the people are mentioned. Are the people the same people in all the people references? No. Does that make sense? We have different people referred to as people. 
Does that make sense? You're starting to think like me. Not good. Financially, it's a disaster for you. I say that right off the bat. <laughs> you laugh because it's true. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Ooh, that's interesting. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, "You see that you are you see what you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him." Notice the disciples did not understand. Well, what's the question now? They did not understand exactly what. What didn't they understand? Is it possible that you are like them and you don't understand either? We don't understand that they didn't understand. None of us understand that's probably true. They finally understand when what happens. What's it say? When Christ is glorified, what's that mean? When Christ is glorified, what does that mean? How is Christ glorified? You're in the book of John. What does John mean when Christ is glorified? It means when everybody knows that witnesses that glorification that this is God himself in the flesh. Creator God. That's what finally everybody goes, oh my, you, all this time you were a hundred percent completely never not God. There's never been a time when you are not God. We finally get it. That's glorifying Christ. And this is, uh, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. What sign was that? Well, it's in the context of Lazarus. Is it a sign of resurrecting a Lazarus alone? Or is it Lazarus combined with riding on the foal of a donkey? Is it both of it? Can I separate resurrecting Lazarus from riding on the donkey? Is that the... Is that the sign, the complete sign? Half the sign, Lazarus, half the other half riding on the donkey. We'll make that decision here in a minute. Why is the foal riding such a riding in the foal of a donkey such a great sign and link to Lazarus? Now you've got to figure that out, right? Raising Lazarus and riding on a donkey. A young donkey. Why are they connected? That's the key question of all of this, in my view. That's how it starts. Answer that question. The other eight of Mark 11 and 12 start to fall into place for you. What does the raising of, a, of the dead have to do with the foal, or riding the foal of a donkey? Now, we're an older group, which means most of us grew up in the agricultural business. Some of us directly, Bill, I know for sure. Many of you, yeah, Marie. I know that Robin and her family, have a, you have a farm, right, still? Is the farm still in functioning? Yeah. My family was involved in agriculture in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. So, I have seen the foal of a horse. So when I read foal, I know as all of us in my particular generation, we know that a horse gives birth to a foal. We got that part. So when you're telling me foal, first thing I'm thinking is newborn. I'm certainly thinking young. This is a young donkey. That's my first thought. So what's the next question? How young is young? 
Has anybody, in my experience, ever ridden a foal? No, they haven't. How does one ride a young donkey? Set that aside for a minute. Because that's the easy question. That's Newton's law of gravity. That's gravitational phenomena. That's simple. You'll be able to handle that with just a basic physics lecture. That's a joke. Okay, not really. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> not really sorry either. <laughs> Can't have, wait, wait to have fun with that. Let's set that aside. Set the how aside. Why does God ride a young donkey? Why? He can ride anything. He wants a young donkey. Go get me that donkey. It's tied up there. It's mine. Bring it to me. Why does God ride a young foal, and why does he do it during the week of Passover after he's resurrected Lazarus? That's a bunch of stuff. That's I wrote, whew. We're going to have to read Lazarus, I'm sorry, we're going to have to read Zechariah 9.9, since Zechariah 9.9 is the key Old Testament prophecy with respect to Christ taking of the donkey. Christ takes the donkey because of Zechariah 9.9. Not really. Is that true? I gave it to you in a human way, a human reference, an inside of time. Christ God, of course, makes sure that Zechariah 9.9 is there because he intends to ride a donkey into Jerusalem before he makes time. So Christ is taking the foal, riding into Jerusalem. It's connected to Zechariah 9.9. He does it during the week of Passover after he resurrects Lazarus. I'm repeating all of those components so that you'll begin assembling them in the correct positions, assigning and placing them into their proper locations. Just keep beating it into you. So let's go Zechariah 9.9 once again. I go so quickly because of the sharpie, holy sharpie, highlighter yellow pen. Here we go. I'm going to read a lot more of this than uh, you would expect. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. Stop. Get in your Bible at Zechariah 9.9. Circle behold. Because you're going to get something amazing that comes next. Your king is coming to you. He is just, he is righteous and having salvation. He has salvation. What's he going to do with the salvation that he has? Think of him as he's got a suitcase filled with salvation. What's he going to do with it? He's a distributor of salvation. He has it. Who else has it, by the way? Nobody else has it. And proof that he's the king and that he has salvation. He's lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I'm going to put a pause here because I believe the pause belongs here. I'm going to stop for a second so that you know there's a time difference between verse 9 and 10. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the end of the earth. So the king is coming. He has salvation. He's going to become humbly. He's riding on a donkey. This is a prophecy uh, before uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before it occurred, right? And the, the, the colt, the foal of a donkey. So we'll break it down. 
Um, first, as I said, it should be said that Zechariah 9.9 describes the first coming of Christ, the first advent, whereas uh, Zechariah 9.10 all the way through, all the way to 17, describes uh, the, is, uh, Zechariah's description of Jesus' return. So we'll get that out of the way. Breaking down Zechariah 9.9, we see two references to Israel. One is daughter of Zion, the other is daughter of Jerusalem. That's the entirety now of Israel. That's the northern and the southern uh, areas of Israel. That's all of Israel. The whole of Israel is being direct, addressed. Behold, you've you got to stop there every time. A great truth is about to be revealed to you, something that very few know. Very few people know why Christ goes into Jerusalem on a donkey. But it's right here. He's explaining it to you. The Messiah, the King of Israel, is coming to you. You are not going to him. He is coming to you. He is righteous, which means he is sinless. Therefore, he possesses salvation. He's sinless. He possesses salvation. That means he has it to give. He's able to save. He's the only one that can save. He's the only one that possesses salvation. He is salvation personified, salvation itself. He will be lowly. He's not going to ride on a war horse. He's not riding in a chariot. He's not in the company of his armies. He's on a foal, a donkey foal. And the word literally means son of a donkey. That, of course, is exactly to the word what Christ did in Mark 11, John 12. He did it exactly as Zechariah said 100 years ago. Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Perfectly. That we can see. We can see that he did it. But why did he do it? That's more difficult to figure out. That's the behold of Zechariah 9.9, if you will. Why did the king come to the Jews? Why did he come riding a young donkey? Those are the beholds, if you will. Notice that he's going to cut off the chariot, he's going to cut off the horse, and he's going to cut off the battle bow. So he's going to end, he's going to end the war. And he's going to bring peace, he speaks peace. First, salvation comes to us. But soon, the second coming, the coming king, will cut off the chariots, the war horse, and the battle bow. Second time, he doesn't come on a donkey, does he? He comes on a war horse with his armies. First time, he comes on a donkey. So what's the difference between the donkey and a war horse? The mistake of the Jewish theologians today, even for all these thousands of years, 2,000 years, is their inability to understand that these two Uh, Things are distinct. Verse 9 and verse 10 are separate events, separated by significant time. There's a lot of time in between uh, the last verse of chapter, or verse 9 of chapter 9, and the first verse of verse 10, chapter 9 of Zechariah. There's significant time in there. And that, by the way, is why Christ rode the donkey. Because there's time involved in those two verses. That's actually the case. Um, one of the many reasons he did it. Okay. Because you see, the donkey 
really in Scripture it's called the ass, right? That's the only animal that is assigned to somebody in the Bible. No other animal is assigned or made parallel with man except for the ass. We are the ass in the Bible. That's us. Job 11.12, let me help you. For vain man would be wise, though man be born a wild ass's colt. That's not an accident. The job, 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 Job 11.12 is in the Bible that way. Christ, God, is riding a wild ass's colt into Jerusalem. Job 11.12, let me repeat it. For a vain man or foolish man would be wise, though man be born a wild ass's colt. Exodus 13.13. And every firstborn of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. That's repeated, by the way, in Exodus 34.20. Those verses begin to illustrate why God wrote a donkey colt. That and the fact that there's time in this. God long ago established the symbolic connection between the foal of the donkey and the need of a man for salvation, or the salvation of mankind. The foal must be redeemed by the lamb. What does that mean? I just have, as a Jewish farmer, I just had a donkey, a very valuable animal, by the way. Very valuable animal for carrying things. And donkeys, if you know, are, are quite domesticated. If you leave them alone, if you don't give them human attention, they get discouraged and depressed. They want to be around you. What does it mean that the foal must be redeemed by the lamb? How does a lamb redeem the foal? I just had my foal born. It's the first born of my donkey. I have to redeem it. Exodus 13:13. 13, 13. If I don't redeem it, I've got to kill it by breaking its neck. And it's a very valuable animal. How do I redeem it? What's the what's the rule? 13:13 13, 13, Exodus. What do I have to do? I have to go get a lamb and I have to kill the lamb in order to save the donkey. There's your answer to why he wrote it in. He established this connection between the foal and the donkey way back at the beginning. The lamb has to provide blood. The only blood that can save the foal is the lamb's blood. If the lamb does not provide the blood, the foal of the donkey dies. It's put to death. It's neck broken. Let me reword that. If you do not redeem the donkey foal with the lamb's blood, the donkey foal will perish. That's the great behold of Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is riding on a donkey. Oh my goodness. Behold, your king will be upon the foal of the donkey. 
And it's going to happen at Passover. It's going to happen at Passover. Is that really? I hope you got the lamb of Passover is riding on top of the donkey. Hope that makes sense to you. And now the donkey will be saved because the lamb is on top of the donkey. The donkey that goes into Jerusalem has the blood of the Passover lamb on top of it. And now the donkey lives. And who's the donkey? We are. And and that means, as you already logically concluded, that's why John places this event, Christ entering Jerusalem in his gospel on Passover week. After Christ is the redeeming lamb who will die for the donkey foal. Christ's blood will be upon the foal. Christ is the Passover lamb. Christ is the only one who can save. Christ is the only salvation. You can't save a foal any other way other than the lamb. There is no other way to get blood to save a donkey foal. Only one. Is there any other way to be saved by God? No, 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 no. There's no other way. This is the only way. You have to have the blood of the lamb to save the donkey foal. And if Christ is the only salvation, then Christ is therefore God himself. That's what John is telling you. That's what the whole Bible is telling you. The only blood that can redeem must be from the only God. Only God possesses salvation. The one and true God of creation. That's John's point. That's why it's such a great proof. How are we doing here? Pretty good. Solomon, as we should expect, had the wisdom necessary to contemplate the creation of time. What does that have to do with this? I know you're thinking. But Solomon was considered the wisest of all and the richest of all. Amazing what Solomon wrote and what he thought. He contemplated the creation of time, why God made it, the why of time, if you will. He asked this question. He asked, why does time exist? Put it better, why did Christ create time? Solomon in all of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 discusses the wise man and the vain man. And the vain man is a donkey's foal, right? The foal of an ass. So Solomon in chapter 2 investigates the vain man. He puts the vain and the wise side by side. Remember, Job 11:12. The vain would be wise, though born of a wild ass's colt. The only animal compared to man is the donkey. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon shifts from discussing the vain man and the wise man to time. And this is a very famous passage in Ecclesiastes. But it is being, it's predicated on this discussion of vanity, the fool, the vain man. Let me read 3.1 to you. Actually, we're going to go all the way down through 11. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. I did an Ecclesiastes study a while back. I won't ask who was there because I know hardly anyone was. To everything there is a purpose. I'm sorry. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Now, he starts to tell you what those times are. There's time. A time for every purpose. That's why God makes time. He wants you to know what time it is and what the order is going to be. It is his way of letting you know things. A time to be born. A time to die. A time to plant. 
A time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill. A time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. Or tear, I'm sorry. And a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What prophecy... As the worker from that in which he labors, I have seen the God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in time, or everything proper in time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Okay, a time for every purpose. And that time, in that what I just read to you, the time for every purpose is then divided into 28 segments. If you counted them, you would find that there are 28 time periods there. That's not an accident. There's a really brilliant man with a great name, Ethelbert. He didn't call himself Ethelbert. Why would he? I've always wanted to name my children Ethelbert. Kind of a Johnny Cash boy named Sue thing. I talked about that earlier with Eric and Lindsay. You're going to be good at something if your name is Ethelbert. Ethelbert W. Bullinger. He noticed that the vain man is attached to 28 times. And that the vain man likewise is compared to a wild ass's foal. And the blood redemption clause on the donkey, the donkey alone, the only animal allotted to man as a symbol, Ethelbert began to delve into it and began to accumulate every reference to donkeys that he could find when he came across Revelation, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 2 and 3. He wanted to know. The donkey has to be in here. And Ethelbert, as I said, looked at every reference, and especially those that had someone riding a donkey. Because Christ rode a donkey, he's going to go get all the other donkey riding he can find. But also in the case of Samson, the use of the donkey's jawbone to kill a thousand's men. And Ethelbert began to be, he's a, Ethelbert is a, the consummate list maker. Perhaps of all time. He loves his lists. If you ever read his books, he was, in my view, the consummate or the absolute list maker of all list makers. The Lord of list making. And so he, he placed what he found in scripture with regard to donkeys alongside of Solomon's Ecclesiastes 3, 9, 1 through 9 list. Suffice it to say that there is time Deeply attached, beyond dispute, time is deeply attached to the symbol of the donkey. He figured it out. There is a God-ordained time or for God-ordained events at God-selected places, and the donkey shows up a lot. By the way, Ethelbert decided that the donkey showed up 28 times, exactly as Solomon So we'll get into that as time goes by. 
point is, is that Christ rode the donkey foal at the precise time, at the exact location, at the selected place. Now, i got to wrap it up. Just wanted you to know that. Let's ask some more obvious questions. A baby donkey is called a foal. We all agree on that. So, re-ask this. How old is that foal that Christ rode? Mark 11, 6, John 12, 14. Ask another question. Is the foal weaned off of its mother? How much does the foal, the colt, weigh? How big is this donkey foal? Matthew 21, 1 through 11 makes it clear that the mother of the colt was with the colt. Why is that? I didn't have one donkey here. I got two donkeys. One's the full-grown mother. The other is the foal. The older and the younger. Which one did Christ ride? Now, there's some disagreement here. But let's go back a second. Why is the mother tied up with the foal? Well, it's pretty obvious to me. I think it's logical. The colt is still weaning. Needs its mother. So now I know the colt is probably less than four months old. How big is this colt? Were you thinking it's a pretty good sized donkey? Because donkeys can get up to almost 600 pounds. That's why I'm asking you. How much does a four month old foal weigh? Now set aside all this. What's the word I want? Stupid. That's the word I want. Set aside all the pictures of your, that you have seen in churches of Jesus Christ with blue eyes and blonde hair and six foot four. Because he was a small Jewish man. Just like Samson was a small, tiny man. He was not uh, Lou Ferrigno. He was Wally Cox. That's why it was such a mystery of how he killed so many people. How he was so strong. They looked at him. How is this tiny little man doing this? Christ is not a big man. Not attractive. He's humble. No one even knows who he is. This is God there, right? God thinks different than us. You think, uh, you think beautiful. He thinks differently. The Antichrist will be beautiful. Keep that in mind. Those of you who are looking at the outside, God does not do that. Where was I? Cold still weaning. So again, once more. How big is the colt? What do we think? 50 pounds? You want to go 100? I'll give you 100. Four-month-old colt. I'll give you 100 pounds tops. Which means that I could easily carry that colt out of here if it was not going to fight me. Is it going to fight me? It's never been ridden. It's still waiting with its mother. That's what God wants to ride in on. It's an unridden colt. It is an unburdened colt. It's an unredeemed colt. How did it get to be an unredeemed colt? It should have been redeemed by now. But I know it's unredeemed. How do I know it's unredeemed? Logically, it's a firstborn male colt. I know it has not had a lamb sacrificed for it. How do I know that? I think it's obvious. Many commentators suppose that Christ rode the motor... Rode Rode the mother and towed the colt. Does that make sense? 
No, that cannot be true. Zechariah 9.9 prohibits such thinking. Christ rode the firstborn pole exactly as it says. Because, you see, after raising Lazarus from the dead, the next most logical thing that he should do, and he did do it because he designed it, that which must come now is that the one who raises the dead would be upon the living foal of a donkey. Exodus 13.13, 13, John 11.44 causes John 12.14. It's now time for John 12.14. The lamb of the Passover would be upon the redeemed foal who is alive. The Passover lamb on the living foal. The sequence is perfect. Duh. And proof of the Godhood of Christ. What did the multitude see? They saw a 30-year-old man, 33, upon an unweaned colt. So I want you to put yourself in the crowd you're throwing your clothes. You've got your palm branches. Here comes a tiny little colt with a 30-year-old, man, 33-year-old man on it. How much does God weigh? Please think before you answer that. How much gravitational force is on the baby donkey? Can the baby donkey carry God? Does, the, does it have a choice? It has to carry God or what? Gets its neck broke. Has to carry God. How much does God weigh? That's the same as asking, how much does salvation cost? Right? Same question, different words. Musicians are absolutely appropriate. So now you have solved Caesar's coin and you have solved the taking of the donkey. 